Welcome back to another episode of Other Tone. We were stretching our uh, intellectual mindset this time, I believe. Oh, yeah. Minds were stretched to the max, bro. (laughs) (laughs) I had Uh, all my mental capacity. I used it on this episode. (laughs) But the uh, guys from The Social Dilemma stopped by the documentary that um, everyone is freaked out by about uh, technology and our phones and social media. And mm-hmm. we had uh, Jaron Lanier and Tristan Harris, who were amazing. They was they was way more optimistic than I anticipated. Aside from that, it was a lot of information that I didn't know that I learned. And they were super cool, man. This is one of those ones where you just got to sit back and listen and uh, hear what they have to say, process the information. You might have to listen to this episode twice. <laughs> yeah. This is Jaron Lanier and Tristan Harris on Other Tone. Other Tone, 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 Tone. Other Tone, 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 Tone. Yep. That was it. Yep. Pharrell was the first one to tell me to go watch The Social Dilemma, which was the documentary that you guys were a part of and made. And uh, he kept telling me, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. How many times did you watch it, bro? I watched it a couple of times because for me, first of all, hi guys and Jaron and Tristan, thanks for doing this. Yeah, of course. Um, I watched it a couple of times because it had, it's, I've been saying this for years. Yeah, he has. And the first smoking gun to me was predictive texting. Because if if an algorithm knows what you're like trying to say, mm. it's been listening to you. It's been paying attention, and if it can predict what you're try, what sentence you're about to say by just typing one word, mm-hmm. then it absolutely knows your shopping habits. And then I started. That was me zoomed in. Then when I zoomed out, I was like, oh. I want this because they told me that, like, I have been programmed to want these things. Mm. That's just it. Yeah, it makes sense. So when this thing first came out, I was like, oh, finally. And these guys, you know, they've they've worked on the inside of some of these companies. So if I was thinking this, and I'm novice, I'm novice, I'm just noticing it, and I'm noticing how my friends were changing. I'm noticing how certain people would become more selfish. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. and 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 really about like themselves and, you know, w- w- you know, what was good for them. I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah. if I'm seeing this, then certainly people on the inside, some people on the inside is, they're going to be popping up and there's going to be something. And then this thing popped up and I was like, thank you, universe. Mm-hmm. Should I throw my phone away now? Like, should we just throw it away? If I were you, I would delete all the apps that you possibly can and turn on every privacy setting and turn off every optional thing and then keep the phone. Mm, okay. You know, cause it, cause there's some good things about phones. Like you can, you know, call people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't, I don't think there's anything um, intrinsically like there's a lot of things that aren't part of the manipulation system. There's a lot of stuff in it. That's not evil. Like if you just text somebody for the moment, it's going through the phone company and there are people who, who sneak in and watch it, but it's not directly tied as much to the manipulation economy. So, you know, you're probably good with that. I would totally mm-hmm. delete anything owned by Facebook or Google. Just don't use them. Just don't do it. Wow. 
Yeah, I, I think in the film, you know, we make a distinction between the the business model and technology. Because I, I just want to say, I think Jaron and I are both, we were just talking, you know, before coming on about how uh, if we're, if the net result is that people just distrust all of technology, just like they distrust our entire political system, or they distrust our entire medical system, or they distrust everything. I, I, for me, that's not the goal. I think we have to be able to acknowledge and actually say, what are the kinds of of technology that are um, healthy, that are positive, that are constructive and harmonizing to humanity, mm -hmm. right? Versus mm -hmm. where is there a problem where the business model that wants to treat us as the as the product and not the customer, that's the key distinction, right? Where are we, the, the dead slabs of human attention and predictable behavior? Just like, you know, at the end of the film, Justin Rosenstein says, you know, in the same way that a tree is worth more as a bunch of two by fours than as a tree, and a mm -hmm. whale is worth more dead than alive, uh, you know, we're worth more when we're addicted, distracted, outraged, polarized, and disinformed. We're also worth more if we're narcissistic. You mentioned, you know, being selfish. I, we talk a lot about impacts on teenagers. You know, we're, we're worth more when we care more about our appearance than if we mm -hmm. don't care about our appearance. Um, so all of these, these, these seemingly disparate effects, you know, I think are part of this business model that I think of like kind of as a climate change of culture. Over the last 10 years, we've been seeing these different effects like shortening attention spans, uh, more narcissism among teenagers, uh, kind of more, uh, you know, simplification of our language and our thinking, less critical thinking, more polarization. Why is everybody seeing a different movie of reality? And you might say, why are these, these are not separate effects, but they all in this case came from this one business model that said, hey, let's treat human beings and their predictability as the things that we sell. And I yep. think that's the, that's the key mistake. And we have to subtract and extract that business model from technology. And if we do that, you can have, you know, if you think about making a FaceTime call, um, you know, when, when you do that, Apple doesn't monetize that, right? There's no business model of, hey, we have to manipulate you. We have to show you hearts and likes and numbers and plus 10 points and comment this and comment that. It doesn't do any of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because FaceTime isn't monetizing your attention. It doesn't care about how often you use it. If you stop using FaceTime, it doesn't send you 20 messages like a digital drug lord trying to tease you back into using <laughs> it again, which is what Facebook and Instagram will do, right? Mm -hmm. So I think if we make that distinction and you subtract this entire business model away from smartphones, you end up with something that's a lot better. Mm -hmm. I just want people to remember that there's lots and lots of benefits. If I could put Wikipedia and a smartphone and text messaging, you know, and, and a, a search for the how-to do-it-yourself section of YouTube videos into the hands of every person, I'd probably do that. Jaron might disagree a little bit with some, maybe some of those edge case examples, but I, I think that you know, democratizing genuine assistance and empowerment to people to live better, richer, more informed, you know, wiser choices kind of lives is, is where mm -hmm. we're after here. And the mistake was when we said that we need to put this in your pocket and then we need to monetize your every move. We need to outpredict the thing that you're thinking you're going to do. We're going to predict how we get you to do the thing we want you to do. And when you mm -hmm. put that in everyone's pockets, you create this sort of controlled, surveilled, and manipulated society. And that's that's just, that's what we want to avoid. Got you. You know, uh, people have said stupid things and have tried to trick each other for as long as there have been people, right? So that's not new. But what is new is making the whole economy of the biggest and richest part of the thing going on, which is the tech companies, to make that economy be mostly about tricking people and mostly about scaring people and mostly about, you know, uh, basically screwing with people's heads for profit. Uh, this, the thing is, we can see an alternative. Like, if you compare YouTube and Netflix, 
they both have some great stuff. They both have some terrible stuff. But the difference is if you let YouTube just give you recommendations and just let it go for a while, I find usually after 15 or 18 skips, it sends me into really dark, paranoid weirdness. You know, mm. you might start off with something that's therapeutic about how to cure your ankle, but then you end up with some weird, uh, you know, some weird thing that's bordering on uh, white supremacy or something like it always drags you there. And the reason it drags you there, that's the stuff that gets people right. So there's some stupid stuff on, on, on Netflix too, but just a lot less of it. The ratio is different. And I think Netflix is more like the way people have been, which is like, you can't try to make people perfect. If you do that, you end up as some authoritarian and you, you undo your good intentions like that. That doesn't happen. But what you want to do is not, overemphasize again and again and again the worst of people you know and 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 i think that you know so i trust in people i'm not going to try to be the content police and say everything has to be great and everything has to be constructive but the thing is if you just remove the perverse incentives if you remove the manipulation machine i think most people come through and most people turn out not to be so terrible and most content turns out to be pretty good and most people turn out to be reasonable when you give them a chance you know but you got to give them the chance. The thing that was always interesting to me is that as people, once we have hubrisly, I know that's not a word, but with hubris, we have determined that something has been reliable, whether it's our phone service. You know what I'm saying? There are people who like, Swear by things. Swear by things. And yeah. once once that brand or that service has given them a level of consistency that they could now deem them trustable, it is so hard to move them off of them, off of it. And and that is, I just think that that's the case. And I think that is where like the evil comes in. Can I respond to that? Yes, sir. The problem with Facebook is not the social connection between people. It's not even a lot of the stuff on it. It's the algorithm that's addicting people and driving, mm-hmm. measuring people's fear, uh, fight or flight responses to make them more paranoid, more irritable, more xenophobic, more racist. That mm-hmm. algorithm removed from Facebook, and what you'd have left is still the part of it you like. Okay, yeah. so I think a lot of times if somebody likes a social media platform or whatever. It doesn't mean that they're a fool. It doesn't mean that they've been totally hoodwinked. It means that they've identified some part of it that they care about. Uh-huh. Like, just for instance, what what, what kind of uh, ideas do you think they should change? Like, I've been at these meetings where Facebook and the other companies court advertisers behind closed doors, and it's really different than the public image. And the public image say, oh, we don't manipulate you. We're, we're with you. But the thing is, what they can offer is mostly disruptive. They can't. Facebook is not good at making people more constructive or healthier. It is really good at making people, um, well, the algorithms keep on exciting. It makes people irritable, racist, fearful, uh, paranoid, all those things. Those are the things that they can do. And if somebody can benefit from generating that stuff, then all of a sudden Facebook has a customer. And that's where 90% of the money comes from. And, And so why is Netflix better than YouTube. It's because Netflix makes its money from subscriptions. So if Facebook has shifted to a subscription model where they had to earn your nine bucks a month or whatever it would be, all of a sudden, I think you'd see it clear up. And they, like mm. basically 
turn off. What they call advertising isn't advertising. It's behavior modification because it's just gotten into this tight loop. It's not like traditional advertising. I don't have a problem with traditional advertising, but I do have a problem with behavior modification. So they change the business model. It cleans up and you could still have the part you like. Gotcha. Yeah. So I don't think it's that hard, actually. I think it's pretty easy. Uh, it's like this really little thing. So at some point that breaks and then it gets better. I really believe that can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you need to do something for people who can't even afford that. You need to have some kind of public library option. I totally agree with that. But you can't say that keeping it free at the expense of destroying society is helping poor people. Like, that's ridiculous. You know, <laughs> I don't think poor people are doing better since Facebook shut up. They're doing worse all over the world at once. So, so this free model is actually not helping the poor. It's hurting them. Jaron, when's your birthday? May 3. Oh, okay. May 3. Taurus. Yeah. And Tristan? Uh, August 12th. Leo. Although personally, I reject the, the, uh, the horoscope as seen from Earth, and I choose to identify with a constellation only seen from a certain distant star that is as yet unnamed. Oh, wow. Okay. Elaborate, please. <laughs> please. You don't understand, please. He just did. He, he just saying, he just that's saying. That's went across me. Because he's saying that's from, from an earthly point of view. Like from, yeah. from Earth's point of view, when he was born, yes. he was uh, deemed a, a, a Taurus. He's yes. saying. He don't like identify to, with that. He'd like to be viewed from uh, the, the point of view of a, the POV of another distant star that has that's not me. been named. Shit. Right. For him, mm-hmm. it's putting him in a box. He's not into that. So it, I can choose that same shit. You could. <laughs> not shit as in shit, shit. I just be like, I can say, listen, I, I don't want to be identified from Earth. I want to be identified. I don't want to identify the moment that I came into being, into existence, as being clocked in and, and from a locality point of view from earth That's i'd like much. to be from somewhere i'd like to i'd like to consider the my astrological aspects from the surface of another planet when i came to ex- existence the only problem with that is uh, is that he because he was born on this planet unless you know something that i don't know <laughs> then you know it's pretty much cement it's pretty oh, much I get it. From that, from that, yeah, pinpoint the, the magnetism came in where it was. It, it was he was born into the gravity of Suppose Earth. That the, was his shell, though. But he, he was born. He was born into the gravity of this surface, this, this the surface, surface of this planet. This planet. But I, on an astral, on an astral, not an astrological, but on an astral level, mm-hmm. I can respect what he's trying to say, or but, what he <laughs> has not trying to say. What he has said, I respect what he has said. Nah, that, that that's a cool answer, though. Yeah, yeah. I'm not of this world. I'm not of you. I feel you. Capex. I have a question about, like, kids growing up not knowing any other way. Because I feel like we're all similar ages where we know the difference between pre-internet and Mm post-internet. And how can we tell how much this is really affecting kids? Yeah, I think... uh... You know, there's always this narrative that um, people always worry about the kids these days. You know, are the kids all right? We, we actually, um, we have a podcast called Your Undivided Attention. We just interviewed um, Jonathan Haidt, who's actually the guy who's in the film who talks about teen suicide rates, especially self-harm mm-hmm. for girls. The, the 10 to 14-year-old range for teenage girls is the most, I mean, frankly, this is affecting all kids from all developmental levels and in different ways. 
but the kind of um, issues we talk about in the social dilemma uh, are really affecting 10 to 14 year old girls in the ex most extreme ways around self-harm, teen depression, and suicide, uh, because those numbers have been going up for that demographic. Um, obviously, you know, young girls have always felt the pressure of what they look like and feeling objectified and that their appearance matters more than, you know, what's going on, on the inside. That's a, there's a lot of social and cultural pressure in that direction. But social media and Instagram just brought that to the extreme, right? Because you're essentially constantly monitored and comparing yourself to people who are only showing the highlight reels of their lives and are in a process of constant uh, social comparison. I mean, one example of this, by the way, even that I think all of us feel, like if you got it, if you post a photo, uh, Scott, and you, you had uh, 100 comments on that photo, and 99 of the comments are positive, and one of the comments is negative, where does your attention go? I was just telling Pharrell earlier, I blow the whole building up. <laughs> Algorithm sees that your attention goes to the negative one. And so then it says, ah, oh, that's what gets them. So then you get more and more negativity. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, that's how it works. Because it's looking for patterns, right? So these things, you know, they're, they're not looking for what's good. They don't know what's good. It's just a machine, just like in the film, The Social Dilemma. You know, there's the three AIs behind you yeah, like twisting yeah. their mustache, trying to figure out what's that perfect thing I can show. You flick your finger and then it activates mm -hmm. a supercomputer. You know, you flick your finger up. It's like, it's going to show you the next thing. It calls mm -hmm. in the supercomputer. All those AIs figure out, okay, we've got this little avatar voodoo doll predictive model of you. And then we'll prick you with a million different pricks to figure out, okay, if we showed you this thing versus if we showed you this thing, this negative comment, or this other photo of this other teenage girl who has this particular, you know, look who, who you'll be most jealous of, those mm -hmm. are the kinds of things that tend to get your attention. Now, the algorithm doesn't know that that's another girl that'll get, that makes you feel jealous, or the algorithm doesn't know that that's another thing that makes you angry. All it knows is that it works. It's sort of like if you're driving down the freeway, right, and, and um, if, if, according to the same logic, um, when everyone's attention looks at the car crash on the side of the road, the algorithm says, oh my God, everyone wants car crashes. Let's just feed you infinite car crashes Whoa. because that's where everyone's attention goes. And so when we use what gets our attention as a proxy for what we value, that's a huge philosophical mistake, right? Because what, what our brains, what our monkey brains and limbic brains and lizard brains look at is not the same as what we as a society value. But when you make that one mistake, I've joked in the past, like if we were to write a book, we, we would call it like the... You know, the, the title would be The Click, and the subtitle would be The Mistake That Turned the World Upside Down. Because the notion that mm. what we click on is the same as what we want or what we value, that one mistake fed through the entire logic of, you know, now trillion-dollar companies who on a daily basis govern what three billion people are seeing, thinking, believing, and doing. That one mistake, that what we click is what we want, has turned the world literally upside down because it was not really understanding what we really value or our insecurities or that negative comment gets all the attention, which by the way, you know, when you turn off the phone, right? And you look away, you, you turn, after you see that negative comment, you turn off the phone. Do you think your mind forgets the negative comment, right? Or does it even think about the 99, you got 99 positive comments that you could be, your mind could be looping on that, but instead our brains have evolutionary heritage that says it's more um, important for our mind to sort for the things that might be a threat to us. Oh, the, the community, the tribe, they don't approve mm -hmm. of us. So I got to pay attention to that negative comment. And so you now have like this hundreds of millions of teenagers who are then, they turn their phone off. Now they're just with their friends, but their mind is still looping on, I can't believe that that girl said that thing to me, right? And now we've just preoccupied a whole generation with, with noise, right? I mean, this is not meaningful signal. This was all puppeteered by Instagram. And I say this, 
not believing that, um, you know, my friends in college uh, at Stanford actually started Instagram. I know the guys who, who made it. I was in classes with them. You know, we're, we're, we still know each other. Mm-hmm. And they didn't intend for any of this to happen. It's really just this business model that turned into a Frankenstein that's kind of out of control. And, and the whole point is we can fix it, right? We, we don't have to live in this world. We can, we, we can get out of this. And it's not that we have to put all of technology back in the bottle. We have to take this business model that we like bolted into this whole infrastructure and subtract that from the way that it, you know, the way that it relates to us. Wow. It seems, it seems like it's only getting larger though, right? Which aspect? The, the business model of like how a, a advertising works on, online. Hmm. Well, you know, one of the things is since the companies make their money by making people feel negative emotions, um, they've ended up without any friends when there's pressure on them, especially from the European regulators, but also in the U.S., nobody's going to stand up for them. So I think something something's going to happen. I don't know what, you know, uh, and at some point, there's enough people at the companies who get it, who understand that just pressure from within, I think, is going to have an effect and have a change. Uh, yeah, cool. There's another side to it, too. Like, let's say you're an investor in Google or Facebook, and you've been writing this thing, and you're saying, wow, my stock's gone up, I'm happy. But then you look at it, and you say, this is really weird. You have this giant company that has one trick. It's like a one-trick pony. And if anything happened to that one trick, they fall apart and they're going to start to get pressure from the business side to say, oh, come on, guys. Mm. I think that's another factor. So I'm actually optimistic there'll be a change. And so the question is like, can the changes happen fast enough? That's where the optimism kind of gets challenging. So worst case scenario, nothing changes. What does that mean? Extinction. Wow. I mean, really, seriously, I don't think humanity survives this unchanged. I think to make that more clear, and I, I know that that might sound, um, you know, extreme for a lot of listeners, right? But I, 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 let's let's actually break down why 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 that would be the case, right? And I, and I share Jaron's view about how existential this is, right? I mean, I say this with tremendous concern. I mean, I feel like Jaron and I have been in com- we've been in conversation for for years about this, and I used to tell him I we I just lose sleep. I mean, it's a very hard thing to look at every day and say, okay. Every day that this, I, I pull this crank on this machine called Facebook and I let it do what it's doing and the Twitter device of this machine, I know there's more people ending up in rabbit holes and conspiracy theories. I know there's more kids who are ending up with depression and suicide. I know there's more attention spans that are being shortened. I know there's more of society hyper-focused on the present, unable to read books or unable to think about the future because that's all profitable for this business model. And you zoom out and say, oh my God, we have these problems like climate change, racism, inequality. What does that depend on? It depends on us being able to see the same reality, the same problems, the same agenda. Okay, these are the things that we really got to fix. And then we have to say, what are we going to do about them? And we have to have a same movie of reality that we've been tracking so we can start to say, okay, let's negotiate. What are we going to do? What, how, what are we, how are we going to solve these problems? And instead, people have profited from getting us to see different movies of reality, right? Mm. And seeing different visions of each other. Um, and, and I think that you know, if you ask people like, what is Black Lives Matter, for example, if you're on the left side of news feeds, you've been seeing all these videos, right, about police brutality and all these things and all this inspiring videos of what's been happening. If you're on the right side of the political spectrum on Twitter, you've just been seeing videos of protesters tearing down statues of people who weren't mm-hmm. slaveholders. And now, so now you have to- totally different views um, about about what's actually even going on. I have a stat here. Um, let me see if I can pull it up here. Where was it? <laughs> Um, That's scary. 
Oh, here it is. Uh, bef- uh, 80% of Trump, Trump voters believe that Black Lives Matter protests were mostly violent, while only 19% of those voting for Bi- Biden believe the protests are mostly violent. Now, it's not wow. that they believe different things having seen the same videos. They mm-hmm. were seeing completely different movies of reality, right? Because wow. of the way that these feeds were giving us information. So if you say, hey, we really have some problems we got to solve or climate change, right? As they talk about in the social dilemma, you know, if you typed in climate change is into Google, uh, you would see different results based on where you're from. If you typed in climate change is into certain places in the U.S., the first autocomplete result was climate change is not real. Mm-hmm. And if you're inside of um, Denmark, the first uh, result was climate change is a wicked problem. Uh, and if you're inside of yeah. China, it's a climate change is real. So it's like, we're being dosed with different visions of reality. And when we're especially at home in a COVID era, you say, okay, what's what's reality? You're, you're sitting at home with your Facebook feed flipping around because you can't go outside yeah. as much. Wow. So now you really rely on these things to construct how do we see what's really going on? Now, the beauty of this is at least with the social dilemma, which by the way, has been seen by like 100 million people now in Good 190 guys. countries yes. and in 30 languages. So now we have a shared, so the, what the film I think does with the social dilemma is it creates a new shared reality about the breakdown of our shared reality. We now have common ground about mm-hmm. why we lost common ground. And I think that's a shared place to stand from which to say, okay, now we have to fix it, right? And now, you know, as Jaron said, we've got, an, we've got a Biden administration coming in and there's hopefully some kind of whole of government response we can start to get moving on this. And all, as Jaron said as well, also around the world, we've got the EU, um, mm-hmm. Australia, New Zealand, there's places that are starting to act and move. And we need to harness that energy and say, hey, none of us win. Uh, as you asked in the question, like, you know, what happens if we let this train, you know, drive itself, let the self-driving car of, you know, social media drive civilization? Where's it going? It goes off the cliff. So we mm-hmm. have to make sure we drive it in a different direction. We got to put our hand on the steering wheel and tug it, you know, back towards putting human values first. Yeah. So look, um, Tristan, I wonder if this has happened to you. Uh, we're both kind of in the Silicon Valley community. And so I'll have people call me up and say, man, this place is sure getting fucked up. We're all going to go to New Zealand or whatever it is. And we're, we're <laughs> mm-hmm. I've heard that. Yep. You know, and I'm, I'm like, New Zealand's like this little country. Why aren't we going to fuck it up too? Like what, what gives it immunity from us? You know? And mm-hmm. I mean, I have some friends down in New Zealand now and it's like kind of the last stop. Like once that, and I, I you know, you run out of world at a certain point. And we've seen that before. Like um, what happened with nuclear weapons was interesting because you could imagine a world where there are all these arms dealers selling nuclear weapons and all these compete Boeing and Airbus or whatever competing to sell nuclear weapons. And that happened because people realized, hell, it's going to kill me too. And this stuff, this stuff rises to that level. I want to put some of these people on an actual rocket to Mars so they can experience what that will be like. <laughs> Once they actually get what Mars would be, I think maybe we have a little bit more hope of getting everybody interested in keeping Earth going, because Earth is great, you know? You know what my greatest headache is? Is that when you want to know what's going to happen, all you got to do is just bet on human nature. Because we're flesh, we have to tap into the spiritual side of us, the higher side, the super conscious, and make super conscious decisions. Super conscious decisions are zoomed out. They're not zoomed in. When you are being selfish, you are zoomed in. You are only thinking about yourself. You're thinking about yourself from a primal point of view. Mm -hmm. You know, that's when you go into survival mode. You're literally just thinking about you. I get it. Right? That's a zoomed in point of view. 
What Jaron is talking about is for people to experience something, for them to realize that they probably would do better if they would zoom out every once in a while and think about more than just them, more than just people who look like them, more than they're just their community, but the whole. Yeah. Right? Okay, so listen. If if human nature has failed us in the past. Human nature continues, continues to fail to us. Continues to fail us. Yeah. But human nature kicks into survival mode and we know... No, no, human nature is survival mode. Okay, human nature is survival mode. So survival mode should tell us that if we continue this way... If you give a fuck once you zoom out. So you can... You can See, you people can, don't care to zoom out, bro. That's what I'm saying. So survival mode kicks in by choice? Survival mode kicks in because you are, you are of the flesh. That's natural. It, it just happens. So if and, I'm and, like, with, and with some people, they just stay on that mode, period. And then with other people, like these enlightened guys... You know, and there are a lot of people who zoom out and think about the world. We all do. Mm -hmm. A lot of us do, but there's not enough of us. Like he said, in 190 countries, over 100 million people have seen this, but there's 7 billion people on this planet, gotcha. most of which are suffering, which usually reduces them down to that place of mm -hmm. survival mode, which is, which is human nature. And so there are algorithms that take advantage of that. Gotcha. That was beautiful. I mean, I think that's exactly that's right. That beautiful, the te technology, you know, is technology getting us out of survival mode or is it putting us back into survival mode when it shows you all these reasons you should hate the other side and why everyone's, why everyone's coming to get you and why you should be paranoid and these conspiracy mm. theories, right? Like it, it's not bringing out the best in us. And that's, that's the vision here is like, what would it look like for having economic systems that bring out the best because our economic economic system also puts us into survival mode for so many people, right? I mean, if you're in the small group of people who make it through and it's benefiting that tiny class, fine. But for most people, it's putting us into survival mode. And also when people are in survival mode, uh, it's, and they don't feel connected or they have real agency in their lives. They can't really do the things that they want to do, but they don't feel participation in the system that respects them or cares about them. It's actually also easier to believe in crazy town and the conspiracy theories and to sort of believe that the whole world is against you. Right. And I think mm -hmm. you have to fix, we have to fix all these things together. And Darren does work with another one of our friends, Glenn Weil, on, you know, how do we really build more of a participatory economic system? And I think, Jaron, maybe you might want to speak to some of those themes because we need a, a world in which we feel like our choices matter, like the government actually listens to it. Imagine a world where you say, hey, there's a pothole right down the street and um, tomorrow, boom, it's fixed, right? And imagine a world where you say, hey, um, this, this, our school system isn't really working and boom, you know, it, it, it changes tomorrow because there's actually a system of accountability, Sorry, I have some oh, yeah. dogs okay. in the background. Let me turn that off. No, it's all good. <laughs> they agree with you. I might have a cat or two show up too. Uh, so um, on this one, look, I, I, I don't think it's very functional to be totally pessimistic about human nature and our chances because we're here. You know, I mean, people have somehow managed to make it this far and we've done stupid things before. So I, I kind of believe in optimism, there's no way to prove it's justified, but I just think, you know, like the alternative is just like give up and I'm not going to do that. So whether you like it or not, I'm going to be optimistic. I agree with you. And I don't want you to think that I'm a pessimist. What I am is a realist who has a lot of optimistic leanings, you know, mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm very, look, here's the thing. There's human nature, there's survival mode, which is human nature. Right. And then there is communal and familial mode which mm -hmm. is uh, spiritual nature. We need people to be 
less of human nature and more of spiritual nature. Mm, you know what I'm saying? And less less of survival mode and more of familial and and more communal mode. Um, mm-hmm. And less zooming in and more zooming out. When you zoom out, you see the bigger picture. You be, you realize where you belong in this constellation called existence. You realize that. Mm-hmm. But if you don't zoom out, then you won't know that our star, day star, which is the sun, is just, like I say all the time, it's, it's just another star. It just happens to be ours. You know, we need people to zoom out more. Like, like you know, Jaron said, you know, he identifies as being clocking himself, as clocking his locality and and his, his time stamp on his existence from another star not here that's not that hasn't been identified yet that man is zooming out he's He's thinking about he's thinking about the greater good (laughs) he's zoomed out right but right now we have these predatory algorithms like uh tristan has said yeah that is literally just preying on all your fears but we're the one species as you said and i really want to zoom into this that that we have the capacity to see that this is even happening to us right like if lions created this like weird tech infrastructure that was screwing with lion instincts, lions don't have self-awareness where they can point their brain back at themselves and say, mm-hmm. what's happening to me? Oh, they're just manipulating my, you know, my desire for more flesh right now. And I, I, I know they're going to show me more of those gazelles, but like, I don't want that. We're, the lions don't right. have the capacity to do that metacognition. We're the only yeah. species with the capacity to see that this is the thing that's happened to us. It's almost a weird, if you want to get superstitious, almost a spiritual proposition that we're the only species that could get ourselves into this mess, but only ones who could notice it, who could transcend it. And you'd have to, like you said, go to a higher place to do that. And you know, what's interesting coming from your backgrounds of music as well, I think like choir and singing like together with other people is Raises something, you know, the one of those, those are, exactly, those are humane technology. They bring us up to some other dimension where we're not like, I'm operating for me and the flesh and right now and here and short. It's like, oh yeah, we've got plenty of love to give around here right? We've got plenty of stuff to give here. And what are those experiences that bring us into that place? And those are more like humane technologies. What if like choirs were the thing, not that they can be distributed digitally, but, and I was just watching, um, what is that video of Modest, Modest Yahoo is the, um, what is it called? One or something like that. Um, it's, he's got this video with playing with Israelis and Palestinians singing, and it's this sort of choir and he has them you know, singing this song about well, one day, I think it's called one day. And anyway, you know, it, it just really elevates you to like, oh yeah, we don't have to be in this conflict place. It brings you to a higher place. And if what what if that was the daily experience of what was was ranked at the top of life's menu? You know, you said at the beginning, you know, that the the menus control our choices, right? If you're not choosing the menu, then you're not choosing your real choices because someone else is picking. But right now, those menus are are showing us, you know, things that prey on our our flesh like you know instincts, our lizard brains, right? And that's not going to lead us to where we want to get to. Wow. Hmm. So well, okay, uh, first of all, go ahead. Go ahead, Jaron. Sorry. Oh man, uh, I I just want to say criticism is optimism because you don't criticize something unless you think it can get better and if there's a future. It, complacency is pessimism. So I don't. I I uh, when you hear somebody criticizing, this is a form of optimism because we think it's worth it. We think there's a future on the other side of this, you know. And so I think that that's one point I really want to make. Uh, the positivity of, of criticism. Uh, and then the second thing, I, I just, uh, Tristan had given me an opening that I didn't pick up about an alternate way to do things. And can I, can I give you a really short story? It's called The Parable of the Gardening Robots. Of course. Let's, let's do it. 
Okay, so I live on this hill above Oakland and Berkeley, and we're always a threat of uh, of burning, uh, which is something unfortunately uh, Tristan knows about too well. And um, and so the people who keep our hill from burning down every year are largely these undocumented workers who run around trimming trees and and you know keeping keeping things fire safe, you know. And so mm-hmm. I started to talk to some of these people because I was curious, like, who is this person keeping me alive? I don't even know, you know. And it was really interesting to talk to them and get a sense of their lives and how they're here and what's going on. Um, and what I realized, a couple of them said, you know, we know that this is only going to last for a few more years because somebody's going to make robots that will come and replace us. And, you know, what I realized about that is, yeah, actually, it's true. Like, uh, we have a robot in the lab that's like this snake robot that can climb up trees and trim them. It's not good Mm -hmm. enough yet. getting better every year. So, yeah, there will be robots. But the thing about it is there's no such thing as robots without data. And so the way it's really going to happen is there's going to be some van that's painted like a nursery school that pulls up alongside the the real human people maintaining the hill, and it's going to observe their every move and learn things. And then that learning is going to be applied to the robot because that's how it works. And so what I realized is there's there's two different ways the future can go, um, and they're both equally possible. In future one, the robots replace the people who are doing gardening and tree maintenance and stuff, and then they're just out of work and that's it. And then I guess they live in tents by the bay or something like so many people do. Or they look at the the van show up to gather their data and they say, wow, this is an opportunity. They unionize, they negotiate for their data, and then they start making a living in a new way as essentially artists providing data to robots, right? Mm -hmm. Then what happens is really interesting. If you just program the robots once, it's boring. Then there are these robots that go up the trees and trim them the same way every year. If you have a new community of creative people who are programming the robots by getting paid for data, all of a sudden it gets a lot more interesting. And there'll be waves of culture and there'll be all of these different, there'll be like amazing spiral pumpkin patches. There'll be optimized gardens to, to fight climate change and to, to improve water quality and create food. There'll be just all these things going on and it'll keep on changing because culture never ends. Culture goes on forever. It's an infinite mm-hmm. game. So you create a new creative class and the future gardening data providers are more like the way musicians at least used to get paid, right? And so you create this, you create more employment, a more creative society. But here's the amazing thing, those two different futures, same robots, same code. There's no technology difference at all. It's just how people treat people. It's just how people think Mm. about people. There's a philosophical difference, but there's no technology difference between those two futures. The second scenario, it sounds like a book I cannot wait to read. Are you writing that book? (laughs) I think so. My my new book, tentatively, it's going to be titled uh, Spiritual Futurism. And all I have to do is finish it, and then you'll read it, hopefully. That's great. Wow. That's awesome, actually. I got a question. So do do you think it's possible to outsmart the algorithms? Like, Like, just real quick, me and him used to go, we used to go at it about, he was like, yo, Facebook got so many... I used to think that no, it's my you know it's my uh, friends list. If I unfriend the toxic people, that I was cool. But then I started once I watched the film, and I know it's really when something that really hit me was like each person has an AI dedicated to them. Like his job mm-hmm. is yeah. to guess. That that was the scariest part. So I'm like, yo, it ain't got nothing to do with my followers. Is a machine trying to trick me or you know outsmart me? So is it possible? 
So my response to that, um, and I think there's different ways to see this, but uh, if you remember, like, uh, I think it was 2004 when, when Gary Kasparov, he's the best human chess player like humanity had, right? Like I so, said, like you think about all human chess players mm-hmm, throughout mm-hmm. you know, the last hundred years or whatever, then we've got Gary. And so far, he's the best one we had. And then he plays mm-hmm. IBM Deep Blue. So you've got this supercomputer and you've got Gary. If you think about like, mm-hmm. why is it, you know, that if you and I, if we played Gary at chess, why would we lose? Like, I mean, sort of obvious, like he's the best chess player, but like really specifically, it's because mm-hmm. you're sitting there on your side of the chessboard and you're like, okay, if I do this, he's yeah. going to do that. But then you're playing forward a few moves. Like you can see maybe two moves ahead or three moves ahead, right? But he's like played eight. literally trillions of chess games. So he can mm-hmm. just see way more moves ahead in the chessboard, no matter what you do, right? He's always going to see more moves. So that's why Gary beats us at chess, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But then when Gary, the best human chess player we have, loses against the computer it's the same thing he's playing a trillion moves ahead but the computer can play a trillion times a trillion moves ahead right and once it's playing that many moves ahead that's that's it for humans in the game of chess (laughs) right so in that narrow game there's a there's a transition point where from that point onward the computer's just better so it can just outsmart us in that move now imagine there's this new game where instead of calling it chess let's call it feed swipe, (laughs) where Mm -hmm. every time you flick your finger up, it's your brain being like, I think I'm just going to look at one more thing and then I'm out, right? And so Mm -hmm. you're playing one move ahead, like I think I know what I'm doing, I'm in control of myself. And then on the other side of the screen, there's this glass and you've got the other side of the screen, you've got the supercomputer pointed at your brain playing chess Mm -hmm. against trillions of simulations again, Mm -hmm. except it's not playing the game of chess, it's playing the game, can I get him to flick his finger one more time? Mm -hmm. And so when we say, man, I just fell into a newsfeed rabbit hole or I fell into a trance. I don't know what I was doing. It, suddenly an hour passes by and you think I should have had self-control. No, you, the, the real answer is I had a supercomputer pointed at my brain that won at the <laughs> game of feed swipe, right? It, it, yeah, it, it played yeah. that game successfully. And I think that's what we have to see. I always think about all these issues in terms of degrees of asymmetric power, like how much more powerful I'm bringing up like this if I, what I'm bringing to the table is like my meat suit, flesh, mind, body thing, and I've got my evolutionary instincts and I care about negative comments more than I care about positive comments. And I've got like the slot machine reward thing and I've got the do other people like me thing. And that's all predictable stuff running through my brain. Like I'm running mm-hmm. super predictable code, right? And then on the other side of the screen, I've got this supercomputer that knows that I'll really respond to that ex-girlfriend if they show me the ex-girlfriend post. It knows mm-hmm. that I'll really respond if they show me that political post about that one politician that I particularly don't like or whatever. And it mm-hmm. knows it's seen so many patterns that it's going to win us at that game of chess. Now, if it doesn't beat you every single time now, if some people listening might say, that's not true, I can still swipe my finger and I can get out. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. But the point is, is that capacity there. And where is this all going? Is, is compu- are computers getting better at predicting your move or worse at it in the future? Obviously better, better, better every yeah. year because... Every time you swipe your finger, as Jaron says, they're making money, right? These, they're basically just a computer that prints money. And where does that money go? That money gets reinvested into bigger computers. And then the bigger computers can predict even more trillions of simulations ahead on the chessboard. So it's a self-reinforcing cycle. And at that point, they just win. You know, it's a checkmate. That's why I say in the film, mm-hmm. it's checkmate humanity because of that specific setup. Now, again, it doesn't have to be this way because the whole point is we're all human. So we're all in the same boat able to look at this and say, why in the world would we enslave our own free choice to the extent that free will or choice or creativity exist? Why would we build this huge infrastructure to enslave ourselves? 
Mm-hmm. And every single human on the other side of that chessboard is on the same team. You know, it's like almost like we're on, we're all on team humanity, but we may not know it yet because we're all trapped in the same mind body meat suit. You know, whether you're black, whether you're white, whether you're young, whether you're old, whether you're a teenage girl, we're all, no one wants that. And, and so this is, this is the inspirational view, view is that we can all demand something different than this. Wow. That's where I get my hope from in humanity. I get my hope from like talking to people who really get it and really understand, you know, the real true ramifications and the, 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 the consequences that we are living in right now and also actively causing for the future and can still be optimistic like that. Mm-hmm. This was food. This was food for like my spirit. I'm optimistic, today. man. I'm optimistic in human nature. I think we might surprise you. Yeah. I just want to thank you guys for giving such voice to this important work and topic because I just think the good news that I always hold on to is like no one wants to be, you know, on a self-driving car that's going off a cliff, right? And I think the question is you just have to see that that's where it goes. And then everybody can say, yeah, of course we wouldn't want to keep doing that. We got to change this. And just personally speaking, I've been, been working on and concerned about these issues for eight years now. And it's been really depressing waking up in the morning seeing all this. I won't lie to you, right? This is really serious stuff. But I feel like I've never been more inspired because so more people than ever in, in our history of working on this uh, understand these issues and I think want to see it change. And so let's just keep building that number up. Wow. It's awesome, actually. This has been really great. And uh, thank you, guys. Thank you. I'm really grateful for yeah, it. Thank you, man. Thank you. Other tone, tone, tone. Subscribe to Other Tone wherever you get your podcast, And follow us on Instagram. New episodes drop every Monday. Other Tone is hosted by Pharrell Williams, Fam Lay, and Scott Venner. Executive producers are Pharrell Williams, Scott Venner, and Moses Shoyola. Engineers are Mike Larson and Mike Hernandez. Theme music is by Thundercat. Other Tone is produced in collaboration with the team at Gilded Audio, Ivana Tucker, Whitney Donaldson, and Nick Dooley. 